Welcome to the Heart of Dad podcast, the show for business owner dads who are passionate about creating a massive impact in the world without sacrificing their family life. Subscribe on your preferred platform to get the latest episodes and join our mailing list at www.heartofdad.com. As a thank you, you'll get free access to all the recordings from the recent Heart of Dad Summit, where we dive deeply into what it is to be a business-owning dad. This week on Heart of Dad, I'm interviewing Chris Fenning. Chris is a husband, father and author on a mission to improve the communication between IT and business teams. Chris believes that everyday interactions, project process and company profitability can all be improved by helping IT professionals become great communicators. Over the past 15 years, Chris has worked in more than 15 countries on three continents and helped businesses in six different industries. He's helped improve the communication skills of individuals and teams around the world in organisations from startups to FTSE 100 and Fortune 50 companies. When he isn't working, you can find him walking in the countryside with his wife and daughter. So this week on Heart of Dad, I'm delighted to introduce Chris Fenning. Hi, Chris. Hi, how are you? I'm very good. I'm so glad we're doing this. You know, uh, we were just saying before I hit record that we've kind of been chatting pretty much since the podcast was launched. But I think you were one of the first people who kindly commented on um, on the podcast when I launched it on LinkedIn and said that you'd found some real value in the story that our first guest, Sam, had had shared. So uh, uh, I feel like we've been waiting kind of for a long time to finally connect and hear your story, which I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, thank you. It's been uh, it's, it's been great listening to the, the show evolve. And I've certainly got a lot from the previous episodes. Um, and yeah, it's been a year, just over a year, in fact, waiting. Yeah. Yeah, sort of trying to find trying to find how life fits together to get this. Uh, get this yeah, recorded. which I guess is going to be part of the story, isn't it? Because uh, you, you, you and your wife and your daughter have moved a lot and, and you're in, you know, you've just moved again. And uh, we're now in a slightly more friendly time zone should we say yeah (laughs) compatibility whereas before it was always really hard wasn't it Um, it was but anyway I I haven't given you the chance to introduce yourself so I'd love to if you could let us know a little bit about who you are Chris and and uh yeah your work and your family life I'd love to hear that all right thanks Matt um so uh I am recently self-employed I am starting in a an entrepreneur solopreneur business where I want to help individuals and teams communicate better at work So I'm a communications instructor, and this is something that I've wanted to do for a while and took the plunge in the last 12 months after a fairly significant amount of change for myself and and my family. Um, My wife and we have a four-year-old daughter. She's recently four. And uh, about a year ago, we were living in America. And in the last 12 months, we went from America to the UK, and now we're in the Netherlands, all part of a a big set of changing plans that were impacted as many people were by COVID. And we are now settling ish in the Netherlands and in the final stages of our furniture, catching up with us from our our tour from America back through the UK uh, and now into the Netherlands. Yeah, that's an amazing journey. And uh, we've been friends on Facebook for a little while. So I saw some of kind of the last few months of that time in in the US and how things came quite abruptly to an end, didn't they? Because you were doing this amazing road trip uh, with a, uh, a, I don't know what you call those things. They're not caravans. It's a big travel trailer, a a 10 meter or 32 foot, depending what your your measurements are, trailer pulled behind a truck. Um, 
like the big think of the biggest american caravan you can possibly imagine and that's what we we were traveling in uh, yes we we had a plan for 2020 and the plan the plan as with almost everybody the plan went sideways uh, and everyone was affected by covid but 2020 was meant to be a year of travel and adventure for us. My wife and I had decided to take a year off work and travel with our daughter before she went into school. We'd been in America for uh, seven years at the time and wanted to come back to the UK or go, go back to the UK because I'm not there now uh, and get my daughter into school in the UK. So we took this, this year off. We handed our notice in. We sold our house and then COVID happened and everything stopped couldn't travel lots of lockdowns uh, living in temporary accommodation and our six months of travel ended up being four weeks which was great it was still fantastic to get four weeks but the six months became four weeks and it ended with 10 days notice to leave the US and so we had we had to set find someone to buy the caravan buy the truck drive to a city with an airport um, arrange quarantine locations in the UK and so all of that happened in uh, August last year uh, so our big adventure became a small adventure uh, with a little bit of stress <laughs> on, the, on the top of it and um, and then since then we've been moving between Airbnbs in the UK waiting for my wife's uh, job she's got a fantastic job in the Netherlands waiting for that to to start and the, the sort of the paperwork to get put in place so we could move here and get settled yeah there's a ton of questions I want to ask you but I've just while we're on this little segment um you know what's it been like for you as a family and, and you individually for not having like a fixed um home ah uh, I want to be really upbeat and positive, but it's been very difficult. And um, we've been living out of four suitcases since I think June of last year. And with a young child, two of those suitcases are books and toys and clothes and things for her. So having a young child in that situation is adds a level of stress because you've got to keep them entertained and deal with their challenges of dealing with this amount of, amount of change and upheaval. And it was, it was stressful, but as a family, we created a daily routine. And although our location changed in some cases, every couple of days, our location was changing and we were packing everything up into the car and uh, shifting to another, another place to stay. Our daily routine stayed as, as consistent as we could. We all had breakfast together at similar times. Dinner was together at the same time. We, we created a routine with my daughter. Uh, my, my wife, Danny, did just an astonishing job of creating a Montessori-style homeschool for Aviana. And so every morning was, it was homeschool time for Aviana and there were all manner of activities and that gave her some consistency. So even though the four walls were different and um, she might be in a different bed every few days, we were still the same the process of going through the day was, was the same. And so we tried to, to give consistency where we could. And that helped with the, <laughs> with the stress of not knowing where we were going to sleep in three weeks time. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And I know there's, there's more to come with that because uh, you're about to move again, aren't you? And uh, <laughs> yes. have the, have the urgent kind of task of getting furniture for a home while your own furniture kind of travels across the world. Yes, we will be camping in a house. So we're currently, for, for, for people listening, we've, we're currently in an Airbnb and we've got uh, 10 more days in the Airbnb and it's at least 
15 to 20 days before our furniture arrives. So we've got a house that we'll be moving into, but it's empty. So we, we will be uh, borrowing from uh, Danny's colleagues and we're picking up stuff as cheaply as we can from Facebook Marketplace. And we'll be camping in our house until our stuff arrives, uh, at which point we'll be reunited with things that we've probably forgotten are in boxes from a year ago. Great exercise in minimalism and yeah. being small. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and adaptability and... and, and you know, I can't imagine what it's like in it, being in it, but I, I imagine there'll, there'll be some uh, amazing tales of adventure to tell in the coming years, particularly for, for Aviana as you, you know, yes. move into a more stable kind of phase of your life. Yes. And she, she's, again, she's done incredibly well. She remembers a lot of the places that we've been. And so while the adventure isn't what we planned it to be, we, we're not still in national parks, we're not, we didn't go to Hawaii. There's all sorts of things that we were hoping to do. We've still had a great adventure. We found adventure even with the restrictions of the various lockdowns. So for example, in the UK, we the most prized possession that we had out of our four suitcases and a couple of rucksacks were three sets of Wellington boots. Because Wellington boots meant we could go out into the countryside for walks. And our, we deliberately chose Airbnbs that were out in the countryside. So we had immediate access to a field, woods and streams. And Aviana, my, our daughter, she loves going on welly walks and finding mud. She will stand and squelch in mud for 20, 30 minutes and just have a big beaming smile on her face the whole time. So having those Wellington boots meant that we could get out of the house, we could get into fresh air, we could still be in nature and it didn't matter whether it was raining or sunny, we could still get out. And um, though that was how we found our adventure and um, we, we definitely made, made the best of what we had. Yeah. I love that. And um, there's something really to, say, to be said, not only about minimalism, but simplicity in a way, isn't it? You know, there's so much kind of that gets in the way of simplicity in our, in our lives. And it's been forced on you. I'm not saying that it would, maybe it would have been your first choice, but you found a really, really, a powerful way to kind of make the best of that situation. Yes. Yes. We, we value the things that we've got with us in a different way. Not, I don't think it's more or less, but it's helped us see the value of items differently. Um, and it's also helped us learn how to pack a car really well. <laughs> Ninja skill, I bet. <laughs> yeah, Tetris on a scale, unlike anything I've seen before. <laughs> <laughs> very cool chris you know i've been asking um men who've coming on the podcast about the, what fatherhood means to them and I, we haven't you know we've dived into a conversation and i haven't really had an opportunity yet to ask you that but I, it's a really important question for me to and, and i love hearing what dads have to say about it so can i ask you that question now what does what does fatherhood mean today for you yes i uh, this is the question i've listened to with most interest on the previous episodes and to me fatherhood is relentlessly revealing and i mean that in the positive and the negative senses of both something that is relentless and we there can be moments of just unbelievable joy and happiness and there can be very challenging low times emotionally for everyone and every day or week 
there's a different situation. There's a different set of developing emotions in Aviana and in me as a, as a dad, um, as I respond to the changes in her. So fatherhood is, is revealing about my own tolerances. It's revealing about how well my own parents coped with me. I was a challenging child to say the least. And um, so I have an increasing level of gratitude and increasing day by day and week by week uh, level of gratitude for what my parents did for me. And all of these new situations are, are revealing about how I feel, how I react to situations, how this tiny human in our lives adapts and reacts and finds joy in the smallest of items um, and helps lift us up when we're having our, our low points. So fatherhood is, is all of those things, a continual learning, experiencing, but also relentlessly <laughs> tough um, package. Yeah, I love that. I really resonate with that phrase, relentlessly revealing, because I think it is for good and bad, you know, in, in my experience too. Um, it has taken me to some dark places, but also some incredibly light ones. So I love that take on it. Really, really brilliant. And, you know, one of the things that had us connect in the first place was um, our very first episode was talking about um, the impact of infertility on uh, on my guest, Sam. Um, and he very openly and courageously shared about that journey and his own you know, part in it. And I know that resonated with you because you also went through quite some uh, challenges with your wife, Danny, in trying to uh, conceive and have your first child. And I was wondering whether you'd be open to exploring that together with me today, because I think it might really benefit um, other dads who who've, uh, who are going through or have been through that, that experience. Yes. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. This is, it's a topic that's not talked about enough. Mm. And I, I can't promise it'll be an easy conversation for us to have, because there is a lot of emotion that, even four years on is still carried with me about that, the, that and those situations. But with one in eight couples affected by infertility to some degree, it is such an important topic because it's not one in eight women that are affected. It's one in eight couples. And that's dads and mums together or wannabe, want to be dads and mums trying to get to that place. It's an incredibly complex topic that for decades has never, has not been talked about. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think particularly that uh, that's such a well-made point as well. It's one in eight couples, not just one in eight women um, who have that experience of infertility. And, and we just don't get to hear the dad's side so much. Um, it's, it's kind of uh, an amazing opportunity. And I'm really grateful that you're willing to to, to dive into it. Where, where would you like to start the story? What would be a good good starting point, do you think? I, let's start at the beginning, uh, sort of going into the process of trying to trying to have children. So my... Okay, so Danny and I got married with, uh, with a, a, an idea that we would struggle to have children. There, there are medical things in our past that meant there'd be a high, high chance of difficulty to conceive. So we, we got married with our eyes open on that, that topic. 
But I, I, I do want to make that point because I'm going to come back to it when we talk about guilt and blame and um, feeling of responsibility and accountability. So our journey began with our eyes open and we got married and very quickly moved to America. We had a lot of change just after getting, getting married, change of jobs, all sort of within about nine months. And after a year or so in the States, we decided to start trying to conceive. And we, knowing that we may have some, some challenges, we'd already found out where um, uh, fertility doctors were, uh, specialty clinics and so on. And we started a process to give ourselves the best chance possible to conceive. And that meant researching, and Danny did, when she wants to learn about something, she will f go to the source. She doesn't just read the, the, the blogs on it. She will get the research papers and, and really dive into the detail. And we found out about better health, cutting out sugar, how to give her the best opportunity to, um, to ovulate with, with higher quality eggs. So that, beca that became, rather than a concept, it became a sort of part of daily conversation for us. As we went through that, um, as a standard six months, year or two years, depending what country you're in, you, you have to try naturally for a period of time before you can see it, uh, which makes sense because reproduction is not uh, an instant thing. Uh, it does seem to be when we hear about teenagers and they're suddenly instantly pregnant, but the reality is very different. And so you have to go through a period of, of real trying, you know, planning ovulation cycles, working out when things are going to have the most chance. And so that was our life for a, a good period of time, six to 12 months before we could talk to a doctor. And all through that time, we were hoping we wouldn't need to talk to, to the doctors. Um, and as we went through it, our, our hope and our excitement of, oh, we're starting on this journey. We, we really want to be parents. That excitement faded. Um, there is nothing like taking the excitement out of uh, out of a marriage, like having a checklist for when you can do the fun stuff. Um, and no one talks about that in the books either. Yeah. So we went through that process and then uh, found the best fertility specialists in the area that we were in and went in and talked to them. And, and the path from that point onwards was set by the doctors. And that began a two-year process with six rounds of fertility treatment um, all the way up to uh, and including full uh, IVF, the in vitro fertilization, and an, a roller coaster of drugs, emotion, medical drugs, emotions, and um, heartache and joy and loss. And it consumed our lives for two years. It is, it became our life for two years was this act of trying to conceive. I mean, I think that's a brilliant summary of kind of just the, the timeline, but also some of the emotional dimension. Um, what, what, what story were you telling yourself around um, becoming a dad in, in that period, Chris? You know, how, how did you, I imagine that was a bit of a roller coaster as well. It, it was. Um, when we started, when we started trying, I had two, two voices in my head. One was the very pragmatic, we know this might not work. We're going into this with our eyes open. And the other was the, please work, please. Oh, I want to be a dad. 
And the volume of each of those voices changed day by day, depending on what we were going through and depending on what my wife was going through. And sometimes the the low points, the, oh, this is really difficult, matched when Danny was in low points. And sometimes when she was having a low point, I had the, this is going to work, it's going to be great, and sort of trying to, to balance each other out. And what, what we both realized through that process is we, you don't control your emotions at all through that, through that time. You, we thought we could, uh, but you don't control them and they can change at any moment, particularly if there's a, a cocktail of birth hormones involved, uh, sorry, pregnancy hormones involved uh, and getting those injections because it's very difficult for, for a body to adjust to the kind of things that get put in it through that process and coupling that with just the regular emotion of dealing with this challenging event. Um, yeah, it was the, a huge roller coaster. What, um, I mean, one thing that comes to mind, and I think it must be very, it must vary enormously in, depending on the relationship, but, um, it's like, how do you create space as a, as a man for your emotional experience in that? Because, you know, I can imagine that there's so much focus on your wife and her body and her process and her emotions. Um, and obviously you want to be supportive of that and sensitive to it. And, uh, but you're equally, a you know, a, you're, um, <laughs> to use a terrible phrase, you're a massive stakeholder in the process yourself and you're, you're having, you, you, you have your own, you know, your own emotional process going on. How, how did you, were you able to create space for that or did it go kind of, you know, was it locked away in a, in an emotional cupboard because there was so much focus on, on Danny and her, her experience. How did you, how did you navigate that? As with most things, it depended. And I think you've described the, the, the extreme sometimes it was locked away in a cupboard and that was either to protect myself or to enable me to have the space to support and listen and be there for Danny and other times my emotions were out and all over the place and I, I couldn't put them in a box if I wanted to so the idea of creating space is something that's that's talked about in a lot of the literature for ladies, there's very little, if any, literature for, for men. So our advice on how to cope with this comes from either talking to other dads, which is an awkward conversation to start up in the waiting room of an infertility clinic. So you don't make a lot of friends during this process um, unless you really try. <laughs> there, there, are, it, there are ways to meet people and help get support groups. And, and so eventually through the process, we found other people and I, I could talk to them. But the biggest help for me and where I found that space and that security to deal with the emotions was actually at work. And I, I have to credit the people I worked with and the, the leaders that I worked for because my journey was shared with them almost as much as it was shared with Danny because it meant that I didn't burden her with my feelings, but they still had an outlet. And if I hadn't had the, the particular people or the, the type of support 
and understanding from my work, the process would have been considerably harder. Imagine that's amazing that you had an environment at work where you could uh, speak enough of what you were going through and have it have it heard and accepted. That sounds pretty exceptional to me. Yeah, it was. Um, it it came down to it came down to the one in eight stat because I worked in a department of uh, it was a big project office. We were running significant sized programs to sort of billion dollar programs, and there was about sixty people in the department. And eight people in the department either had gone through or were going through some form of infertility problem. And it's that one in eight stat. They, they were in the room, but I only found out after I started talking about it. Um, I knew of a couple beforehand because they, they'd been open about it, but it's a very personal experience for everyone involved. And if there's sort of the one lesson to take away from all this, everybody's journey is different. Your infertility journey is different from the person sat next to you in the waiting room. Everyone's is different. And some people will talk about it a lot and some people won't. And I chose to talk about it. And I talked to the couple of people who I knew and that opened up a discussion with others who were going through in some cases, similar in other cases, different challenges at that time. And we had a, a, an informal support network whilst also doing our jobs at, uh, uh, at work. That sounds amazing, Chris. Um, if it doesn't sound like too stupid a question, but how did you start those conversations? I mean, what, what was your in with them? I just came out and said it. Um, I'm, I'm very open about things that are happening in my life. I'm, I'm quite closed about how I feel about those things, but I'm open about the, the, the stuff that's happening. And partly because of the research that Danny had done beforehand, I was better prepared for the amount of time and impact and schedule challenges that we would have because of this process. So I went to my boss and, uh, and I told her what was happening. And she was, as in everything, she just was great about it. Um, and that once I broached that subject, she was interested on a, an individual human level, as well as the what's the impact to work. But the human stuff and making sure that I was okay and that Danny was okay was the top of her list. And that just made everything easier particularly when this process became disruptive to work and it, it definitely became disruptive to work. I've got more questions about that, but can you, can you just elaborate a little bit on that? What happened in terms of your work um, that, that was so disruptive for people who don't understand much about ah, the process? Depending on the flavor of infertility treatment that you're, you're going for, and there are lots of different types. Some are minimally invasive. Some are, are significantly invasive. There are strict regiments of taking, giving injections, taking drugs. You have to go for mostly on the, the, on the mother's uh, situation, have to go for a lot of tests and scans, um, multiple blood tests, multiple internal exams, ultrasound exams. Then there are tests for, uh, for me, um, sperm count, uh, testosterone level, and all these things have to be timed. And in some cases they have to happen within a certain hour, couple of hour window. And those 
that that doesn't wait for a project meeting. That doesn't wait for a compliance session. Hormones in the body are doing what it's doing and you have to follow that schedule. Um, if I'd been a call center rep tied to a desk for that period, the stress would have been unbelievable because I would not have been able to attend almost any of the sessions with Danny. Mm. And being there together was important for us to get through it together. Um, I can imagine. So, so it sounds like, um, you know, the support you had from, from your employer and your, your boss specifically uh, made a significant difference At this point, into, just in both your emotional well-being, the also, conversation obviously the physical the, success, uh, ultimately, really emotional for, the process for, as well. for Chris. And yes. uh, we both took a, a bit of a breath, uh, re- gathered ourselves and, uh, and set off again. So we're going to pick it up again in just, in just a moment. So I, I've talked about some of those standard challenges, the day-to-day scheduling and getting to appointments and wanting to be there as a couple and the support that I got for work from that, uh, for those things. But in addition to that, I, I had support when we had some real challenges, things that were unexpected, um, one of which was a miscarriage that occurred in our um, first IVF, which was our fourth round of treatment. And it was a it was a short notice emergency where the doctors thought that we were having an ectopic pregnancy. I say we, my wife Danny was pregnant, but ectopically. Uh, and we had a very short window to get a cocktail of drugs to help address that before it was looking at surgery. And my work was very supportive of me being able to just drop everything and go for that. And we also had what was a, an emotionally a worse situation was my wife was caught up in the terrorist bomb blasts in Brussels airport during our sixth round of IVF. And that uh, we were separated by an ocean and Danny was going through just something. I can't even imagine the turmoil of that event. And on top of that, she had to uh, give continue giving herself the regimented cocktail of, of drug injections and while trying to have this emotional support transatlantic, um, my work supported us through that and the aftermath of that event. Um, but Danny was okay. She was very, very shaken. Um, she wasn't physically injured, um, but she was actually in the middle of the, the blasts. And so we had, that was the peak emotional stress through this whole process. And my work was very supportive of giving the time and plenty of hugs, lots of hugs, which at the time were, were necessary because our family was in England. And so I ended up with a surrogate work family. And yeah. that is, the, is one of the positive messages out of this is the, the process was easier because of the people around. And if I'd shut them out, if I'd kept all my feelings in that box we talked about earlier, I would have done it alone. And that, doesn't bear thinking about. Chris, was there a point where you thought, I give up with all this? I just, you know, the the price is too high. Yes. Yes. It was our fifth round. Uh, In fact, we almost didn't end up with Aviana. We had three IUIs, which are, I I, I can go into some some of the detail, but they're less invasive. Everyone hears about IVF, test tube babies, grow something in a Petri dish. 
that's the kind of the, the, the pinnacle. That's where you get to if other things aren't working before you go to egg donors. There's a lot of different types of procedure you can have. But the one of the, the most expensive, longest, most complex is the in vitro fertilization. And we'd had three rounds of sort of half IVF to the IUIs, and then two rounds of IVF. And the first round was when we had the um, suspected ectopic, this rush to get this cocktail of drugs late in the day, couldn't get all the doctors lined up to get things done. And so our first full IVF and our fourth time at the clinic was emotionally very, very draining. And we rolled right into, oh, so we had to rest for, for three months, three or four months, because it takes time for the drugs to come out of Danny's system. And so we used that time to recover and recuperate from, uh, from the miscarriage because we were pregnant and we lost it and we lost it in a challenging way. So we recovered from that and said, Let, we got pregnant the first time IVF, let's let's do this again. And as you go through the process there, it's all about numbers. They give you the hormone levels, they give you your sperm count, they give like everything is done by numbers. And there's numbers that are good, there are numbers that are really good, and there are numbers that are, are, are terrible. So you're looking at charts all the time and trying to sort of second guess, are these numbers good, are we on the right path? And our numbers were really good. All the numbers, all the stuff leading up to, <laughs> leading up to the actual uh, fertilization and then putting that embryo back inside were, were off the charts good. And so we were really buoyed by this. And we had, I think, 12 eggs that fertilized, which is a great number. Um, and they all expired in about a three hour window. Uh, so for anyone who doesn't know anything about uh, in vitro, the, the lady gets a big cocktail of drugs to artificially release loads of eggs. Normally one or two come out every monthly cycle, but they, they turn the ovaries into a big bunch of grapes, like release as many eggs as you can. Then they go in with a big needle and take the eggs out of the ovaries. And then they, in, in the lab, they then combine the eggs with the sperm. They pick the best ones they fertilize, and then you get your egg count. That's how many are fertilized. And 12 was like off the chart, great. We were expecting one or two. And every day they give you a status. Are the cells dividing? Um, you can even see pictures at the end of what they, they look like. Um, and every day we got this list and they grade the, the embryos. You get, uh, it's like in grades at school, like one to five and eight to, a to F. And we were, we were just getting such positive results every day that the hope was building and building and building and building and building. And we went to implantation day and they said, yeah, you've got three now. And like hours before we had 12 that were all almost all really good. You, you've got a, a few now, we'll put some in and then nothing. Just, just nothing happened. We still had to go through all of the, I mean, we, two embryos got implanted, but even when it, when they put them in, it was kind of like, yeah, these are the best of what's left, but they're, you know, they say, don't, don't be too hopeful. And we just ridden this high of really good stats. 
and then on the day that that mattered they said ah it's probably not going to work and then you have what's called the two week wait where you get nothing you just have to wait to see if they see if they take um, see if they embed and implant and start growing and the two week wait is awful because you're really hopeful you've invested tens of thousands of, uh, of pounds and hundreds of hours and, and such a load of emotion. And you've got these two weeks before you know whether it worked or not. And on, at the end of the two week, Danny was very aware of her, her body having gone through sort of five cycles of this. She said, it's, it's not taken. And we went in and they said, no, it's not. And that was the lowest point. That slide from s- overcoming the first, uh, that, the miscarriage, having like superstar stats who were like, yeah, top of the class. And then just a rapid slide and then a two week wait, which is hard enough anyway to then be told, yeah, it didn't work. And it's, it's an anticlimax, unlike any anticlimax, like anything you can experience. It's just the depths of disappointment. And at that moment, I said, I'm I'm done. I, I was emotionally completely drained for myself i didn't know how to help danny i just i didn't want to go through it again and the idea of going through that process knowing what was coming i did not want any part of that at all how did you come back from that chris because obviously you did go through another cycle and you've got a daughter now so we know the story ends differently but how did you it it does end differently um I may have to choose my words carefully because Danny will listen to this. Um, it was a real combination of things. Some of it was just apathy. It was like, fine. But Danny wanted to do it. We, we, we had, we had enough left in the, in the bank. We, and we had very good insurance to help cover this, but we had enough financially. We had some embryos that were frozen from a previous round. We, there was enough left to give it one more chance, but it would have been the last time. And I didn't, I just didn't want to go through it. I didn't think that I could support Danny. I didn't think Danny could go through it again after what had happened, but she, in a, in a very steady and quiet and calm way, just held my hand and we went through it. So she supported me through the last, like starting into the last round. Um, and it's it's what what she wanted, and we we could do one more. Right. We found a way to do one more, but by God, it was a hard one. <sighs> it was the worst of the lot <laughs> at the very end. You know, I love this this story. I mean, not only how. Um... You know, I really appreciate your openness and courage in, in sharing it, but it's just really real as well. You know, I think uh, for people who conceive naturally with or without challenges, you just don't get to see um, the tenacity you have to have, the, um, I think, common purpose as a couple, because you know, the, the impact on you emotionally, physically, I mean, you've alluded to kind of the the impact on your physical relationship and having to go through this kind of very mechanical um, kind of formulaic process, which yeah. is very much against the clock rather than 
or the calendar rather than you know the, the natural cycles of of intimacy and passion that you have in, in relationships you're kind of having to push yourself through that and to um to really share that story and also be very real about it i mean you know i really hear how done you felt at that point with number five and number six was kind of you know in through through love for your wife and what she wanted kind of you you stepped into that space and she supported you but it sounds like um an, an incredible process incredible process you've been through it was it yeah it really was and um Yeah, yeah, uh, and the the thing that still boggles my mind is that our story is one of the easiest and simplest stories. One of the things that that Danny did is she joined a number of communities and, in fact, set up a couple of communities um, online for people who are going through this to find support and, and solidarity with other couples and other mothers that were going through this. And Danny, one of Danny's ways of helping understand her emotions and express them was she created a blog about this. And so she had this very open out there in the world, warts and all description of how she was feeling, which is very alien to me. I'm, I am keep my emotions as much as I can inside. But that worked for her. And through that process, we met people who I'm blown away by their emotional and mental strength and how much support they have for other people while they are going through the most horrendous of situations. Um, People who, in the middle of their process, end up having to have a hysterectomy. People who lose pregnancies late, multiple times, four, five, six times, they're, they're heading into their second trimester, getting close to their third trimester and miscarrying. Um, all kinds of just gut-wrenchingly hard stories to listen to, let alone live through. And those are the people that are around us. And we don't, you don't know this walking down the street. You can't look at someone and go, ah, yes, they have a triangular head. Therefore, they must have uh, fertility challenges. There is no way to tell. And sitting in the waiting rooms, uh, there, there was every every walk of life, um, and a huge range of ages, and yeah, just the things people go through that we are utterly unaware of. And from a guy's perspective, the things that our mates' partners are going through that we have no idea, and therefore the burdens they are carrying, we are just oblivious to it. I'm hoping this conversation is going to is going to shine a light on that in a, in a big way. I mean, Chris, what would you say to um, a, a man who's at the beginning of this journey of um, fertility treatment and looking ahead, both with, I, I guess, an enormous amount of hope and excitement, but also some trepidation? Because, you know, I think people have a sense that it's not an easy process. It's often a multiple intervention cycle and fraught with with challenge what would you share with them um the i have an internal battle with this because the advice so that i'm so anti-advice on this topic um so my 
my advice is, which, which is so contradictory saying that, is every journey is different. Every single infertility journey for the individual, for the couples, for the extended family is different. Know that. And when you are receiving advice from other people, know that their journey is different from yours. It's not better, worse, it's just different. And so you're going to, going through this process, you are going to hear a lot of things from a lot of people. Everyone has a story to tell, whether it's their own story, or I had a friend who did this, or my aunt had that, or the, have you tried just relaxing? You're going to get all kinds of advice. Your journey is your journey. And if you, if you know that, then you can more, perhaps more easily hear advice from other people and take things that are relevant for you and ignore everything else. Um, and for me, the knowing it was our journey and my journey was a bit of a shield that stopped me getting annoyed when people were saying, just relax and it'll happen. Um, which is the worst advice. Don't ever say that to anyone who is trying to conceive it is hands down the worst advice uh, because anyone who says that stress prevents uh, conception should realize that Danny and I conceived a couple of days after she was caught in a bomb blast. <laughs> uh, that's kind of a stressful event. <laughs> We'd gone through IVF before that. So I do not believe that just relaxing is what gets you, gets you pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, that kind of anti advice that's anti advice. I love it. And um it really resonates with me because it's kind of a good rule for, for life in general, isn't it? That we can be full of ideas about how people might lead their lives and what they need, but actually every person's journey is utterly unique. Um, I think it's been amazing having this conversation and it's been really deep and very vulnerable in what you shared. Um, I think it's going to be a massive value to people listening into the podcast. I want to thank you for coming on and being willing to share your story in the way that you have, Chris. It's been amazing listening to you. You're really touched. Oh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to share it. It's, it's a story that I've wanted to tell. And I, I've talked to people about it because there needs to be a voice and more, more people, men, women, more people need to talk about this because it's happening every day. But it is very raw, even four years later after a successful result, it is very raw. Uh, and I want to say thank you for, for the way that you helped guide me through this conversation because that you did it in a very, very sensitive way. And I appreciate that. Yeah, you're very welcome. Chris, it's been a joy and an honor to, to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. And if people want to find out a bit more about you, where, where can they go? Uh, yeah, well, I'm going to start with my, my wife's blogs because they're still out there. If you're going through an infertility journey, whether you're a guy or a girl, um, the great pudding club hunt.com. It'll be in the show notes because it's quite a mouthful. Uh, there's a lot of factual information on that. There's a lot of just amazing stories, um, re links to resources and so on. So anyone going through the infertility journey, I thoroughly recommend that as a starting point to find out about other stuff. If you're interested in me, go to chrisfenning.com. I do communication stuff. Uh, not a big theme on this, this talk, but if you are interested in improving your communication at work, reach out. I'd love to, love to have a chat. 
Yeah, I'd love to have you back to talk about that as well, because I'm really interested in that area and how you got into it and, and what you're trying to do. Because as you know, you know, I've worked with uh, in a technical business and, and and with IT teams, and I think the mission you have around helping IT teams communicate more effectively is an absolutely brilliant one, really needed. So, you know, maybe there's another episode there for us to to dive into that topic. So I think it would be really interesting i'd love to hear that story of how you got there and shout out for your book chris as well tell us about the book you've written because that's pretty amazing ah yes i i have recently released what i get to claim is an award-winning book Uh, i just was very very fortunate and quite honored to receive uh, an award um, for my book the first minute how to start conversations that get results and the book's very simple it's a short book about how to get to the point we're all told to be clear and concise in our communication. We're almost never told how to do that. So I set out trying to find out how, and it turns out it's quite simple. Uh, there are a number of simple tools and models that can help you be really clear and concise when communicating at work. So check it out. It's available on my website, uh, Amazon. In fact, all books sell, you know, bookshops and things. Brilliant. Copy. Congratulations for that as well. I think it's great. Great to hear and see see it published. And I enjoyed the uh, process of voting for the covers. And I think the one one I voted for is the one that came out. So um, <laughs> good taste, right. very good taste. Of course, the people spoke. <laughs> exactly. Uh, thanks again, Chris. And great having you. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your preferred platform to get the latest episodes. And join our mailing list at www.heartofdad.com. And just to remind you as a thank you, you'll get free access to all the recordings from the recent Heart of Dad Summit, where we dive deeply in what it is to be a business-owning dad. Hope to see you there.